Isaiah chapter 10 is a wonderful chapter. We've been through it. We've, been, we've looked at it before. We haven't been through it, meaning all the way through it. We've looked at it because of verses 5 through 19 describe the overthrow of Sennacherib by God. We like to use the illustration of Sennacherib being an axe in God's hand or a saw in God's hand. We see that and we understand the sovereignty of God that is taught in Isaiah 10, and for that we have used it. We like to see the pompous, arrogant language of a king that God took down and how God took him down without any human intervention. There wasn't a drop of blood or a drop of sweat exerted on the behalf of Jerusalem when in the night 185,000 of the best, the cream of the Assyrian army, were taken down. There are seven little sections to this 34-verse chapter. In verses 1 through 4, Israel is judged for their cruel injustice by their magistrates, and it is a judgment similar to the last three judgments given in chapter 9 that began at verse 8. It almost looks like there's an error or a weakness in the chapter division between chapters 9 and 10. I don't go that far. I trust God's providence. I know that the first four verses align themselves well with Isaiah 9, 8 through 21. Because at verse 5, we have a very definite change to address King Sennacherib. And so in verses 5 through 14, the second section of this 10th chapter, it's about the arrogance of Sennacherib, king of the mighty Assyrian Empire. In verses 15 through 19, if you look at them, it's the judgment of that king. In verses 20 through 23, a remnant would be elected and delivered from the consumption of the nation that God had decreed. In verses 24 through 27, Judah was told not to be afraid of Sennacherib, that God would take care of him. Verses 28 through 32, Sennacherib begins his approach to Jerusalem. And so a lot of little Judean villages and cities are mentioned as he approaches the top of Mount Zion, Mount Moriah, for the capture of Jerusalem, or so he thinks. And then in verses 33 and 34, the last two verses, God cuts him down to size. It is a wonderful chapter. If you love the great God of the Bible, you should love all 34 of these verses, especially... 29 of them, commencing at verse 5. I hope that you will enjoy them. We have tonight, as our featured billing, in the ring, Jehovah of Israel versus Sennacherib of Assyria. And it's no contest. Our God did all that he could to nourish Sennacherib and make him great. He blessed his army and grew it as big as he could. He helped him in all of his conquests so that he would arrive with the most pompous, arrogant confidence that a military commander could have in order to destroy him. So similar to Pharaoh, we should always remember them together. Pharaoh and Sennacherib, Egypt and Assyria. The shame is you and I cannot appreciate a real empire and fear. America's never been afraid for a couple hundred years or ever. They weren't afraid of the British. Do you know how many people were involved in fighting the British? What percentage of our nation? One third of our nation were loyalists. They were on the side of the king. One third didn't care. One third fought the Revolutionary War and defeated England. Japan raided Pearl Harbor, and we lost around 3,000. That's all. And we consider that a catastrophe. 9-11 was supposedly a catastrophe, but only 3,000. We are talking about numbers that are in a whole nother realm. That's right. People feared when Sennacherib set out on an expedition. Right. If he went west... He went west all the way to Egypt and made them submit. If it was time to go east, 
He'd go to Babylon and Persia and Elam and what we would call today Iraq and Afghanistan and make them submit. When those two were done, he'd go north and press into Cilicia up toward the Black Sea. He would take on Tyre and the island state that it was in the Mediterranean. We don't know anything like that. We've never been afraid. But he caused fear. And there have been other kings since him, like Attila the Hun, who was called the scourge of God. And then there was Timur, who was called the wrath of God, of the Turco-Persian Empire of the 14th century. We don't know anything about that. We think of Adolf Hitler. Yep, he lasted about four years. His little tiny kingdom was about four years long. But it's all we know. We do not know what it was like when a Sennacherib would set forth with his professional army and all of his engines of war and all of his supplies and cruelly destroy everything in his path. We don't know what it's like. But God raised up a king like him so that we could appreciate what our God can do. To be king of kings, you want to be able to take on all kings. And you would like to take on some of the best kings because the ability of any king is determined by the kings he's defeated. Our God is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is called the blessed and only potentate. Rejoice with me in this wonderful passage of Scripture. Our God loves this contest. I tried to show you that in the preparatory email I sent you last evening, yesterday afternoon. Because you know nothing like Sennacherib in history, in our modern era, we can't fully appreciate what God did. But God did a marvelous thing, and we're going to read about it. But the Lord loves it enough that he uses his law of emphasis in the Bible and repetition in the Bible to convince us how important it was to him. The law of emphasis or repetition in the Bible indicates a degree of importance of the content of a passage. When you find Psalm 18 in 2 Samuel 22, what does that do to you or for you? It does a lot to me. Oh, the Lord likes Psalm 18. He wanted it in the Bible twice. And so it's in 2 Samuel 22, and it is Psalm 18. So I love Psalm 18 a little bit more when I discover that. When I look at the Gospels of the Lord Jesus Christ, I find that all four of them have the crucifixion and burial of our Lord. But only two of them have his birth. John doesn't mention his birth. Mark doesn't mention his birth. And so I understand that God wants us to value his death over his birth. So we have the Lord's Supper and we have baptism to remember his death and burial and resurrection. So we learn things that way. I'm sorry for taking so long explaining that to you. Details of Jehovah crushing Sennacherib are found three times. In 2 Kings 18 and 19, then in 2 Chronicles 32, then in Isaiah 36 and 37. Do you realize that we're going to have to deal with this man again? Oh, I'm just getting started. Then there are seven other places in the book of Isaiah, at least seven other places in the book of Isaiah alone that deal with Sennacherib and the Assyrians and God crushing them. So we're going to run into it many times. Isaiah 10 is just going to get us started, but it really hasn't started because, get us started because we've already seen some hints about Assyria in the chapters leading up to chapter 10. And then, of course, there's other prophets that refer to Assyria and Sennacherib as well. There are so many practical lessons to derive from Isaiah 10. I've got a list of 20. I'm not even going to read them to you. They're in the outline. Practical lessons of how to view life. How to view hypocrisy. You know, we're going to, this, this chapter deals with hypocrites. Verse 6 says, I will send him against an hypocritical nation. Who's the hypocritical nation? The church of God. It could be us. We better not be hypocrites. That is a practical lesson to get out of Isaiah chapter 10. And there are many of them. You should never be afraid of political news. The stuff going on in our capital 
And the stuff going on, Moscow, Beijing, or anywhere else, is child's play compared to what we're talking about here. It shouldn't move you. There's a God in charge of all of them, and they don't do anything without his complete use of it for his honor and glory. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. There's a straitjacket on the kingdoms of this world. There's a straitjacket on the nations of the world. There's a straitjacket on politicians and leaders. If there's a conspiracy you want to worry about, worry about the conspiracy in the Godhead and with His Son, Jesus Christ, because that's the only one that works. That's the only one that's ever done anything. Is God's decree and determinate counsel of what will come to pass. Oh, Lord, teach us these things and so many more. Let's go to the first lesson. Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. I read distinctly in the Word of God and try to give you the sense quickly of this fourth lesson of four lessons given in a row, beginning at verse 8 of chapter 9. But now I read 10.1. And the first word should get your attention. Woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees and that write grievousness which they have prescribed to turn aside the needy from judgment and to take away the poor, to take away the right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey and that they may rob the fatherless. And what will ye do in the day of visitation and in the desolation which shall come from far? To whom will ye flee for help? And where will ye leave your glory? Without me, they shall bow down under the prisoners, and they shall fall under the slain. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. I hope that you can remember from two weeks ago, when we were in Isaiah 9, that we had that last sentence of Isaiah 10:4 three times in Isaiah chapter 9. It was in verse 12, 17, and 21. For his hand is stretched out still, and his anger is not turned away. Remember that. The lesson that we have here in these first four verses is God's judgment for the cruel injustice of the magistrates. Woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees. These are rulers. For they have the opportunity and they use decrees and writing sentences. They are unrighteous decrees, as verse 1 tells us, because they are for gain rather than applying the law for the protection of those under the law. And they are grievous prescriptions for hurting the weak they were put in office to defend and help. And so in verse 1, we can pick up rather quickly God's woe to magistrates for decreeing unrighteousness and writing sentences of grievousness against the poor and prescribing things that did not help and protect them like they should have. And so in verse 2, there are four descriptions of their evil. Isaiah 10 and verse 2. These magistrates that decreed unrighteousness and prescribed grievousness, in verse 1, they did it to turn aside the needy from judgment. Those that needed help, they turned aside. They ignored them, or they discouraged them, or said they wouldn't take their case. And to take away the right from the poor of my people, the poor that couldn't afford someone to fight for them, they took away the legal rights and ignored them or betrayed them. Then, third, that widows may be their prey. They used cases with helpless widows to pad their own pockets as their legal prey. And that they may rob the fatherless. They preyed on children without fathers in estate cases to rob their assets or income. And so in four ways, various angles on these magistrates is in verse 2, describing their wickedness. We always want to be faithful to the offices God gives us. 
God despises abuse of any office. Holding your place at Isaiah 10, look at Psalm 82. Psalm 82. Let me quickly remind you that God wants you to be faithful in the offices He's given you. You may have one, two, you may have several of the five offices that God put in this world for the smooth running of our world. In Psalm 82, God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. That means he's among legislators. He's among magistrates. He's among rulers. He judgeth among the gods. Those gods there in that verse are not idols. The gods in this verse are rulers because they're called gods in the Bible. They were called gods in Exodus chapter 22. Jesus referred to them as gods in John chapter 10. And so the Lord asks in Psalm 82 and verse 2, How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. This is what they were doing in Isaiah 10 and verse 2. Defend the poor and fatherless, God tells them. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. This is a belligerent, rebellious group of magistrates seeking their own profit. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. The earth has foundations, and those foundations are those in authority, that they must be faithful and do their job faithfully to hold the planet together. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High, but ye shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. So there's a psalm committed to warning magistrates. Back to Isaiah chapter 10. We want to be faithful in our offices. God chose civil rulers to be ministers of good to citizens in a nation. God chose fathers to provide instruction for children. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and do not discourage them or provoke them to anger. Clearly laid out in the Bible. God provided husbands to provide rest for wives. A wife should never have to worry. A wife should never have to fear. A wife should know she's never going to be criticized. She's only going to be encouraged. Because Naomi told Ruth, I need to seek rest for thee. Because marriage should be rest for a woman. Anyway, reminders to us about being faithful to our offices. Verse 3. And what will ye do in the day of visitation? Now notice, there are four questions in verse 3 to offset the four descriptions of their wickedness in verse 2. So in verse 3, there's four questions. What are you going to do when I visit you for your abuse of the poor? When I come and pay a visit. And he will visit fathers that don't do their job. And he will visit husbands that are unkind to their wives. He will not hear their prayers. And so we have 1 Peter 3 and verse 7. And we have Malachi chapter 2, where the altar of God was covered with the tears of women because of their husbands. What will you do when I bring armies to desolate you? What will you do when the nation that you asked for help turns on you? Remember, Ahaz sent to Tiglath-Pileser to help him when Pekah, king of Israel, and Reason, king of Syria, joined together to come against Judah. Do you remember that? They appealed to Assyria for help. But God's asking, what's going to happen when the mighty power that you look to for help turns on you? Right here in this verse. Where will, they, where will you hide the glory, your riches, your promotion that you've acquired by corruption and fraud from the coming invaders? How will you keep it? Where will you put it? Where will you leave it? Because it's going to be stripped from you. There'll be no glory. There'll be no riches. Because Sennacherib knew that he could take the riches of the people, and he did take the riches of Judah. He didn't get Jerusalem. He did take 
the 46 fenced cities of Judah, there wouldn't be them left. He's, he's able to rob the nest of the people and take their riches. And so the Lord asks, what are you going to do since you've chosen to take the office I gave you and misuse it for your profit? What are you going to do when I pay you a visit? And he describes it in four different ways. Without me, those are terrible words. Listen, the first two words of verse 4 and the first word of verse 1 are terrible words. Without me, they shall bow down under the prisoners. They shall fall under the slain. To be under the prisoners is to be taken first, taken easiest, and treated worst. To be under the prisoners. You are taken prisoner, but you are just not an ordinary prisoner. You're under them. You were taken first. He's going to come after you. And God does it that way. He's going to come after the guilty. And they shall fall under the slain. The same description there. Those that are taken captive. Sennacherib took 200,150 200, out of Judah and carried them captive. It is written in the annals of the Assyrian Empire. It is on inscriptions in detail about his third expedition of his military campaign which involved Judah. He describes Hezekiah by name, that he locked him up in his city like a bird in a cage, and the king could do nothing. He describes that third expedition. Of course, he doesn't describe the end of the third expedition, because what king is going to record for posterity what happened to him outside the walls of Jerusalem? But the inscriptions of Sennacherib have all been found. We know about his various expeditions. And we know what he thought of Hezekiah. And we know what he did to Judah. And we, because we have the Bible as a history book, know what happened to his army. Right. Without me, they shall bow down unto the prisoners, and they shall fall unto the slain. They will be the first ones taken and cruelly put to death in the judgment of the Assyrians against Israel and Judah. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And so there's more to be described, and we will find it in the pages of Isaiah of what God did with the Assyrians to Judah. Let's come to lesson two in verses five through 14. Without God, don't those words frighten you? We never want to be without God. Without me, ye can do nothing. With me, all things are possible. And that first word, woe. So when you look at the first four verses, connect them to chapter 9, beginning at verse 8, because there are four descriptions of sin and four descriptions of judgment and four concluding statements. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. I am preaching to a church today. You are listening to a preacher today that preaches that God gets angry. Mm -hmm. And God doesn't get over his anger easily. Right. And that is the truth of God's word. But if you repent, his anger disappears in the morning. Right. He's incredibly merciful to those that repent. And we always want to remember that. And we want to remember the way we used that sentence at the Lord's Supper two weeks ago, that the Lord's anger against sinners is going to burn forever in the lake of fire, but the Lord Jesus Christ turned his anger away and his hand is no longer stretched out against us, but reaches out to raise us up as his children. It's a, a glorious change that Jesus Christ made. I begin reading at verse 5 all the way through verse 14. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. I will send him against an hypocritical nation and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Howbeit, he meaneth not so, Neither doth his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. 
For he saith, Are not my princes altogether kings? Is not Kelno as Carchemish? Is not Hamath as Arpad? Is not Samaria as Damascus? As my hand hath found the kingdoms of the idols, and whose graven images did excel them of Jerusalem and of Samaria, shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols? Wherefore it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. For he saith, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and I have removed the bounds of the people, and have robbed their treasures, and I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. And my hand hath found as a nest the riches of the people, and as one gathereth eggs that are left, have I gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved the wing, or opened the mouth, or peeped. I love the closing peep. None even peeped against Sennacherib. There wasn't a bird that even peeped as he robbed nests of eggs, meaning the wealth and treasures of nations and people. And so we have these verses for lesson two from, or the section two from Isaiah chapter 10. It's the arrogance of the king. Now in the middle of the arrogance, we have a wherefore in verse 12. And in the middle of some more arrogance, we're going to have a therefore in verse 16. And I do want to show you that God doesn't want you to have to read the whole passage without him inserting that he will do something about it. And so he inserts at verse 12, a wherefore. Verse 13 goes right back to boasting. He inserts at verse 16, a therefore. Because our great God is not going to put up with this king for long. He raised this king up and he blessed him to accomplish what he did. But then he took him down just like he did Pharaoh. You all remember the words about Pharaoh, don't you? For this same purpose have I raised thee up that I might destroy thee and make my name known throughout the earth. Right. And so it's the same thing about the Assyrian. In verse 5, O Assyrian, he calls him the rod of mine anger. God's angry. The staff in their hand is mine indignation. God is indignant. In verse 6, God has wrath. And who is his wrath, indignation, and anger against? His own people. Right. Judah. That's why he's bringing Assyria against them. This God is not preached anymore. I shared a little bit with you in the Friday update about the Bachelorette and the spat that's going on in America, the spat about fornication and how this fornicating girl that calls herself a Christian, this Bachelorette, said that she can fornicate and she can sin and Jesus loves her. She doesn't know the Jesus of the Bible. She doesn't know this God because she hasn't read the Bible and she doesn't go to a church where the Bible is preached to think such an arrogant thought. She, wants, she wanted to accuse the young man who believed in purity before marriage of holding a stone over her head like John chapter 8 describes. But in John chapter 8, when Jesus dealt with the woman taken in adultery, he said, go and sin no more. What you've been doing is sin. Don't do it anymore, even in that passage. Lord, have mercy upon our wicked nation. Or Lord, have mercy upon your people within this wicked nation. Like you tell us right here in verses 20 through 23, you, ha you had decreed a consumption you had determined that you would consume the land of Judah, but you had a remnant in it. Save us as your remnant, but we better be living faithfully. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger. The Assyrians were just God's rod to spank the Jews. The staff in their hand, what they did against Judah was God's indignation. The leader of the Assyrian expedition or campaign was merely God's chastening rod of his anger. 
the metaphorical staff was his army to execute God's indignation against Judah. And they were successful until they got to the city of Jerusalem. God told Hezekiah, they will not set foot in this city. I will defend it for mine own sake and for my son David's sake. Isaiah 37, 35. They will not shoot an arrow at it. They will not put an embankment up against it. But they did everything else. They took defense cities. And if you go read 2 Kings 18 and 19, 2 Chronicles 32 and Isaiah 36, it says he took all the fenced cities of Judah, except Jerusalem. Jehovah claimed that Babylon was his hammer and his battle axe in Jeremiah chapter 50. Here, Sennacherib is his rod and his staff. God gave Alexander the Great dominion for his great work against Persia. And I've already mentioned Attila the Hun as the scourge of God and Timur as the wrath of God. In all such cases, the empires and armies were enabled by God for their temporary work. Jehovah eternally decreed it, and Jehovah temporarily enabled them. The Bible says, Alexander the Great was given dominion. The Bible's picture of Alexander the Great, 200 years before Alexander the Great, was a leopard, already a very fast beast, B stands for a kingdom with four wings. Now, when you put wings on a leopard, you've got something fast. And when you give it dominion, incredible dominion, how in the world could Alexander the Great with 40,000 Macedonians and him at the front attack 600,000 Persians, 400,000 Persians, 600,000 Persians again, and defeat them every time in battle? How could he? cross the river grasses and climb the opposing bank when he was outnumbered five to one on top of the bank and take his horses up the bank. God gave him dominion. Don't ever fear anyone. God gives dominion and God takes away dominion. God gave dominion to the Assyrian Empire. God took away the power of the Assyrian Empire. You ought to read the book of Nahum. Three chapters of how God is going to destroy the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. A tremendous city. God's in charge of all of it. Verse 6, you know, the Jews had been hypocritical. They hadn't worshipped God the way they should have. They had high places throughout the nation. Some were given to idolatry. They looked to Assyria for help against the confederation of Syria and Israel. That was under King Ahaz, the predecessor and the father of King Hezekiah. The, I'm going to say this again. The only conspiracy you ever need to think about is the decrees of the eternal counsel of the living God with his son, Jesus Christ. God is the king of nations. Jesus Christ is the prince of the kings of the earth. Jehovah is the blessed and only potentate, King of kings and Lord of lords. It's a terrible shame when Christians are confused by politics or terrible world events. The prosperity or punishment of nations reflects their obedience to truth revealed or the prosperity of fools as God sets them up like Pharaoh for his greater judgment. Always remember that. America has been great because of the preaching of the gospel in this nation and a very good-sized remnant in years past of those that feared God, loved His Son, Jesus Christ, and lived by the Bible. We still give lip service to the Bible. We still give lip service to one God who is Jehovah of the Bible, not to any other. But our nation is changing. And so if we continue in prosperity... It's because God is going to bless us, either for the sake of the remnant, like he promised the remnant in Babylon, Jeremiah 29, pray for its peace, and in her peace, you'll have peace. It could be that way. Or God is going to set America up for a bigger fall by puffing her up in pride, by prosperity. God gets angry. God gets furious in wrath. And yet his judgment is less than nations deserve. War atrocities. We're in verse 6. War atrocities 
and war crimes are by his decree and determinate counsel. Worship him. It says in verse 6, I give him a charge. I have charged Sennacherib to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. This wasn't an ordinary war. This was just for pride. This was just for riches. This was just to expand an empire. God gave him a charge to do it against his own people, let alone what he did against the Philistines and all the other nations gathered around Judah. Nothing should bother you. People get all bothered about what they call the Holocaust. That God gave a charge for that. Don't you understand that? We must understand it. We never want to talk like Billy Graham or Ann Graham or Franklin Graham or anyone today that is allowed to speak when they say, we don't understand, we don't know why, we don't understand why God did this. We don't need to understand. God did do it. There's no issue about evil. We deserve evil. We chose evil. I've given you lessons about evil. God charges men to do evil. You say, are you serious about that? Do you need an example? Let me give you two. The crucifixion of Jesus. Was that a war crime and an atrocity? Was it according to the determinate counsel of God? Was every single detail according to the determinate counsel of God? Don't be moved by anything. How about the ruin of Jerusalem? Did women eat their children? By the decree of God, they ate their children. They should have eaten their children. They'd been warned about it 1,500 years earlier by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Anyone that asks why or gets angry or is confused has rejected the Bible. I love to see God at work. You say, well, what if it happened to you? Well, then I deserve it. And he's going to rescue me from it. I'm still not bothered. Next question. You know, Mrs. Job was not like Mr. Job, was she? Dost thou still retain that integrity? Let this church always retain its integrity. She said, curse God and die. He said, you speak like when the foolish women speak. And we have a nation filled with foolish women just like Mrs. Job. Let us never talk that way. Your children aren't yours. It doesn't matter what God does with your children. The children are His. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Job knew how to talk about ten of them. Thank you, Lord, for Isaiah 10 and verse 6. I will send him. I'll give him a charge. You know, he's charged me to preach. He charged Sennacherib to waste. He didn't charge him in Scripture in the same way that he charges me, but he charged him that that's what he would do. That's what his purpose was on earth, to be his rod and his staff, the indignation of his wrath against his own people. Verse 7, but Sennacherib didn't think about it that way. Sennacherib didn't care about Jehovah. Howbeit he meaneth not so, neither doth his heart think so. He doesn't think that he's fulfilling the purpose of God's eternal decree and his determinate counsel. It's in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. He wants their wealth. He wants to take their wealth back to Nineveh and build a bigger and better palace. And that's what these kings of Assyria did. And you can read about them and what they did with the wealth that they took. He just wants to build an empire. He's an empire builder. God used Adolf Hitler the very same way. There is no reason to think that there was any less of a purpose for Adolf Hitler than there was Sennacherib. And so we look at all of human history the same way because of what the Bible tells us about some of these much larger events in significance and fear and how they affected even the church of God. Here is God's sovereign use of man's evil lusts without ever being an evil author of sin. Sennacherib, the son of Sargon II, wanted to be great in the history of the Assyrian Empire. So he wanted to build and extend the empire. God just directed that 
overly ambitious, cruel, tyrannical leader of the Assyrians to accomplish his purpose. Sennacherib felt no pressure from God. Sennacherib felt pressure from his bank account. Sennacherib felt pressure when he looked at the city of Nineveh and realized that his father had built more than he had. And so it was pride. It was ambition that motivated him. Let no man ever be deceived or confused about this matter. God is not tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. James 1, 13 through 16. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts. And we're told right here what the lusts were of King Sennacherib. And God just used it. The Jews were envious. They killed Jesus. The Romans were fearful of an uprising of Jews accusing Pilate of not being a friend of Caesar. And so we see the lust of fear and we see the lust of envy coming together in Jews and Romans to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. God didn't have to infuse evil in either of them. Listen, God doesn't need to infuse evil in you. All he needs to do is pull a little restraint back from you, a little restraint back from me, turn you over to Satan for about five minutes, you'll do anything. David numbered Israel. David knew better than that. And Joab is standing there in his face, reminding him that it was against the Bible. And he still went ahead and did it belligerently against his nephew, who was right in this particular occasion because God had turned him over to Satan. And all that did was let out the lusts that were in David's heart to know how big of a nation do I have. I'd love to be like Jonathan Crosby, he said to himself, who likes to look at the almanac and see how many soldiers are in my army. And so he did it. You know, the Lord stepped back from Peter, and look what Peter did in just an hour later. Look what Peter did just an hour later. But it comes from within us. You know, I have preached all this in great detail in a series of messages quite a while ago now called The Dominion of God. The Dominion of God. And it deals with it at length. It it attempts to be exhaustive on pulling up all the verses in the Bible about how God hardens men, how God directs men, how He uses men, how He withholds grace. And I, I, I direct you to that series of messages if you want to hear about more about how God does it. You know, but God does do it. And so I give you the example of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Because in Acts 2 and Acts 4, Luke writes very carefully and Peter preaches very carefully that it was all by the determinate counsel of God what was done to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards wrote along these lines. I've shared this with you before. God is no more the author of sin than the Son is the cause of darkness by darkness being the certain result whenever the sun sets. Yeah. When God leaves a man, guess what happens? God's going to leave Hezekiah. What happened? Hezekiah got proud. Hezekiah got proud and showed the ambassador from Babylon the riches in the Lord's house. Shouldn't have done that. But it says the Lord left him that he might know what was in his heart. You know God already knew that, but he wanted to expose it. And so we have verse 7 here. Some get confused about free will by not grasping these facts and rightly dividing them. Sennacherib's will was free. Sennacherib could pursue a career of ambition, which he did. He didn't feel any compulsion except his own driving ambition. But the Lord just directs that king like every other king, like the rivers of water, back and forth wherever he wants that king to be and to do whatever he wants that king to do. And if he needs to get the king a little worked up, all he needs to do is put some frogs in his bread and bed. Remember, bread, bed. Frogs in the bread and frogs in the bed make a man a little irritated. And so Pharaoh got a little irritated. And so the Lord does... Listen, there's countless examples like that in the Bible. What should a man do when he cuts open his, a loaf of bread 
to make himself a sandwich and he finds a frog that he has just decapitated in his bread. What should he do? You know, if he, if he doesn't get that little lesson, when he goes to bed and hears the ribbit in his bed under the sheets with him, what should he do? What should he do? Isn't that nice from the Lord to send frogs? He could have dropped him straight into hell. But when he sends frogs, do you know what we ought to do? Repent! Right. He, give, he gave Pharaoh so many warnings. And there was Moses. Let my people go. This is what's going to happen if you don't let them go. He had a nice warning every single time. God never manipulates men by infusing evil lust into them because they already have it. God vitally gives us a new heart that desires very different things. And that is pure grace when he does that. Verse 8. Here's what he thinks. Are not my princes altogether kings? Listen, those men that report to me are equal to the kings of this world. Is not Calno as Carchemish these cities that I've defeated? It doesn't matter whether it's a big city, little city, important city, unimportant city, strong city, weak city. They're all equal to me. It doesn't matter who I'm up against. Jerusalem's not going to slow me down. Calno's a city as Carchemish was a city. And it didn't matter. It was easy. Hamath and Arpad were cities of Syria. One known well, the other not. Calne and Carchemish are mentioned in the Bible. They're in Mesopotamia, over there between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, in current Iraq and Iran. Samaria was the capital of Israel. Damascus was the capital of Syria. We're in verse 9. But the Assyrians had defeated both of them, which we can read about in 2 Kings 16 and 2 Kings 17. No problem. I have princes that are equal to or greater than the kings of nations. I have no problem with these cities. It doesn't matter, big, little, important or not, I can just take them when I choose to. Verse 10, As my hand hath found the kingdoms of the idols, and whose graven images did excel them of Jerusalem and of Samaria, shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols? I've never had a problem with leadership. I've got princes that are better than kings. I've never had a problem with any city. I've taken any city I wanted and a whole variety of them. I don't care about any gods. And it was a religious time in the history of the world. Remember when he goes home, he's going to go into the temple of Nisroch and worship. It was a religious time. I've never had a problem. No God has resisted me. And he knew that Samaria and Judah had once been the one nation of Israel, right. whose border had extended from the Euphrates to the Nile under David and Solomon. He knew that. And so he, appe he appeals to this fact, how is Jerusalem going to be able to resist me since I've already taken the capital of ten tribes and their idols? What idols does Jerusalem have that I haven't already defeated in their stronger brother Israel? Well, one little problem in that whole thing. Jerusalem didn't worship an idol at this time. They worshiped God and they had a king that worshiped God. Jehovah God. So this is just the arrogance of Sennacherib. Men foolishly compare all religions as equal in their idiot almanacs and other encyclopedias. Other religions have no holy book like the Bible with its many supernatural proofs. When they look at Christianity, they confound Catholicism with Christianity, though the Bible damns the Roman Catholic Church as the greatest enemy of Christianity. Right. But see, they can't... Listen, when you go to an almanac and you find out that there's 2.2 billion Christians on earth, 1.2 billion of them are Catholics. But the Bible says Catholics aren't Christians. They're anti-Christians, literally. So they're confused. They assume a legion of denominations is conflict, though God promised it. There must be heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest. And so forth. There's more that could be said. I hope that you can understand verses 10 and 11. He starts out with, My princes are better than kings. They're like kings, but they report to me. 
No city has ever withstood me. No God has ever stopped me. And that includes Samaria as a city, and that includes Samaria's gods. And he knew that they were connected to Judah. So Judah doesn't have anything to stop me. But verse 12, we got a wherefore. This is an inspired interruption by the narrator to remind hearers and readers of God's plan. Wherefore, it shall come to pass. After you read a few verses of the blasphemy of Sennacherib, you need verse 12. I want verse 12. Even though verse 13 is going to jump right back to Sennacherib boasting, I like 12 stuck right in there to comfort me. Oh, yes, something bad's coming. Wherefore, it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, that's his whole work of chastening, when he's punished the Jews enough, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. He thinks he is so great, he has mouthed off that the gods of Jerusalem will not be able to preserve it like the gods of Samaria couldn't preserve Samaria. And so the Lord says, when I'm done, remember, the Lord always has a plan. He's had a plan from the beginning. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Acts 15, 18. Everything is known. It's all according to his timetable. It's perfectly laid out. And he had a work to do. And that was to punish the Jews for their hypocrisy. He could not allow Shalmaneser and Sargon to take the ten tribes captive, which occurred ten years earlier, in the fourth year of Hezekiah. The whole nation of Israel was disbanded and hauled away. He couldn't allow that to happen, and yet have Judah guilty of some of the same sins. So he has a work to do, and that work is to chasten them by getting rid of most of them. It's called the consumption decreed in verses 22 and 23, and to turn the remnant of them back to him. Because that's what 20 through 23 is about. He had two things to accomplish. He had to make it bad to consume most of them to leave a remnant that would love him. And he did it. And so the only reason Sennacherib was getting away with anything was God's timetable to accomplish glorious ends and purposes. And that's in verse 12. Wherefore, because of this blasphemy that we've just read in verses 8 through 11, wherefore, it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed his whole work, when he gets done with chastening. You know, every father knows what every father should know what degree of punishment is appropriate for each offense of a child and when it ought to be applied. Dads know that. God knows it. God knew what he wanted to accomplish by getting rid of most of the nation, so it would have to be terrible. He would tread them down like mire in the streets and how to get the remaining few to put all their trust in me. How do I, how do, I do that? Well, he had figured that out in eternity and we're reading about it. It, history is his story that he determined in eternity. That when the Lord's performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, that's Judah, I'll punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria. His puffed up heart is venting itself through his mouth and he is saying things I'm not going to let him get away with. So readers and hearers, to Isaiah, I stick in verse 12 to comfort you that I do know what's going on. And I, I wish that you could appreciate the wherefore. And verse 12, being alone. It's alone. Because 13 goes right back to Sennacherib. But it's all we need. Because it's God saying, when I'm done doing what I raised up Sennacherib for, I will then take care of Sennacherib. I was 19. I've told you this before. I was 19. And the Lord used Romans 9. Let's turn there very quickly. Romans 9 to humble me and teach me about his greatness. Pharaoh is so close to Sennacherib 
in how he's treated in the Bible and how God dealt with those two kings. Romans 9:17. I'm going to start at 17. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Pharaoh survived gestation. Pharaoh survived birth. Pharaoh survived infancy. Pharaoh survived elementary school. Pharaoh survived swimming lessons. Pharaoh, remember the Nile. Pharaoh survived military basic training, advanced training. Pharaoh survived the academies. Pharaoh survived warfare. Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up. I've taken care of you every inch and every step of the way in your life so that I might show my power in thee and that my name will be exalted. Your name will be put down. Your power will be reduced completely as you suffocate to death in the Red Sea. But I will get myself a name. And so it's been talked about for 3,500 years. And it's a wonderful story and we love it. The Philistines knew about it hundreds of years later when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the field of battle and a shout that went up that echoed and rang across the countryside. The Philistines said, what is going on? And they heard that the Ark of the Covenant and they remembered the Red Sea. It's a huge event. But you know what the Bible says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. 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 Throughout the book of Exodus, so verse 18 says, Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy. That's appealing back to verse 15. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So verse 18, Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy. God chooses to show mercy to whomever he chooses to show mercy. Right. And whom he will, he hardeneth. God can harden anyone that he chooses to harden. Thou wilt say then unto me. When anybody hears about God hardening someone like Pharaoh, they ask a question. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? How can he fault Pharaoh since he hardened Pharaoh's heart? For who hath resisted his will? If verse 18 is true, that God shows mercy to whom he will, and whom he will, he hardeneth, then how can he hold Pharaoh responsible? Nay, but, O oh man, who art thou that repliest against God? He's God. That's the way it works. Shut up, sit down, grow up, and learn how to think biblically. I love the God of the Bible. And I love him for telling me I don't have a right to know. It is none of my business, and there really isn't anything to know. He's God, and we're clay. He's the potter. We're vessels, either of honor or dishonor, settled. That's the Bible. Amen. You say, well, it's only in Romans 9. No, it isn't. It's in Romans 4. It's in Isaiah 45. Just give me a few years. And we'll get to Isaiah 45. Back to, back to Isaiah 10. I thank God for that passage. Because I loved meeting a God that told me I didn't have a right to ask. And that he wasn't going to answer. That he was just going to tell me, I'm God. I'm the potter and you're the clay. I can make out of you anything I want. His whole work in verse 12, he's going to finish. God knows what his children need in the way of chasing. And he never exceeds it. Chastening is his strange work. He doesn't like it. Just like when we tell our children sometimes that I do not like doing this, but I'm doing this to make you better. He hates punishment. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, he said in Ezekiel 18. And in Ezekiel 18, he isn't talking about the world going to hell. In Ezekiel 18, he's talking about his people being rebellious and him having to chasten them. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked will turn from his wicked ways and repent, and I can heal him. Arminians have no clue about the Bible. They've never thought about a verse outside John 3.16, and their thoughts on John 3.16 are totally upside down. God can and did use the pride of Sennacherib's heart, and then he crushed him for pride. 
You say, how can God do that? I just showed you how from Romans chapter 9. He had planned and purposed all aspects of the event before it happened. Look at Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14. Do you know we're only going to be able to go four chapters before we run into Assyria again? Isaiah 14. Lorraine Bettner's book, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, Arthur Pink's book, The Sovereignty of God, John Owen's book, those books use passages like this over and over. And I remember reading them for the first time in my life as a 19 and 20-year-old. Listen to this. When I keep referring to his eternal counsel, this is about Assyria. This is about Sennacherib. We'll get to it soon. Isaiah 14, verse 24. The Lord of hosts hath sworn, saying, Surely as I have fought, so shall it come to pass. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and upon my mountains tread him underfoot. Then shall his yoke depart from off them, and his burden depart from off their shoulders. This is the purpose that is purposed upon the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out upon all the nations. For the Lord of hosts hath purposed, and who shall disannul it? And his hand is stretched out, and who shall turn it back? Amen and amen. These kind of passages should build up our most holy faith, that we worship a great God, and no events of this world should ever trouble us. They're according to his eternal purpose. Let's get the rest of his boasting before our break. In verses 13 and 14. For he saith, I want you to notice, 12 was inserted to remind us that God was still in charge. And so we need to remind each other from time to time that God is still in charge. Verse 13, for he saith, this is Sennacherib talking now, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and I have removed the bounds of the people, and have robbed their treasures, and I have put them down, I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. And my hand hath found as a nest the riches of the people, and as one gathereth eggs that are left, have I gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved the wing, or opened the mouth, or peeped. Here's an immediate return to the boasting blasphemy of Sennacherib. Note that he says of himself in one verse, verse 13, strength, wisdom, prudence, and valiant are all about him. He had destroyed kingdoms. That's an accomplishment. Changed boundaries of people. That's an accomplishment. Robbed treasures. Beat inhabitants out of their home. A man will do anything to defend his home. He took them out of their homes. He transported them all over the place. His immigration, emigration, and transfer of nations was one of the cruel traits of the Assyrian Empire. But it's all by the God's blessing upon him. Look at uh, Isaiah 37 for just a second. Isaiah 37. Isaiah 37, verse 26. This is, these are two important verses. Well, actually, there's four, but let me get these two, 26 and 27. Hast thou not heard long ago how I have done it? It wasn't Sennacherib doing it. It was God doing it. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question. I was faced with this issue just before I was ordained. Who took away Job's children and stuff? Be very careful in your answer. Who took it away? God did. Satan's nothing. God did. You ought to hear God and Satan when they talk. Satan knows it's all God, and God knows it's all God. Satan can't even run pigs down a steep place and drown in the sea without God directing him, allowing him, using him to accomplish that. This may be hard for you to understand. If you do, if, I want our church to understand this. Who led the Assyrian army and accomplished all that the Assyrian army accomplished? God did. 
Hast thou not heard long ago how I have done it, and of ancient times that I have formed it? Now I have brought it to pass. I formed the army. I formed the empire. I helped them establish Asher in Genesis chapter 10. Now I have brought it to pass that thou shouldest be to lay waste defensed cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? Because God was in it. Their inhabitants were of small power. It's not because of your professional army. It's not because of your engines of war. And those things are documented about the Assyrian Empire. Therefore, their inhabitants were of small power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and as the green herb, as the grass on the housetops and as corn blasted before it be grown up. I did it. I did it. You're just my pawn. You're just my puppet. Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? (laughs) He's God. And we chose to be his enemy in the Garden of Eden, and it's all perfectly done. And if you while we're here, so that we don't have to come back to this particular place, maybe, look at verse 28. But I know thy abode, and thy going out, and thy coming in, and thy rage against me. I know your rage, your pride, your, your pride and rage in the matter is far beyond my use of you. Because thy rage against me and thy tumult has come up into mine ears, therefore will I put my hook in thy nose. Oh, I love that thought. Can you imagine the tow truck backing up and out comes the cable and the hook goes in his nose? I will put my hook in thy nose, my bridle in thy lips, and I will turn thee back by the way by which thou camest. And so we have a corollary, a very comparable cross-reference to Isaiah 10 of the blasphemy. God did it, and God's going to judge him for his role in it. Verse 14, My hand hath found as a nest. All the treasures of the nations have been as easy as picking up eggs. There wasn't a bird that moved a wing. The birds just sat there gently, and I was able to pick up wings without any difficult pick up eggs without any difficulty at all. I am thinking about you doing that. Picking up those eggs and gathering them, there wasn't a a wing that moved. There wasn't a mouth that opened. There wasn't even a peep because I had the power to do it. But God saw that rage and that pride. And as verse 12 tells us, he's going to punish the king Sennacherib of the Assyrian Empire. May the Lord bless the reading of his word for us to worship our great God and Father. Our God and our Father wants us to know this story. He repeats it a number of times for us to celebrate him. That is worship. For us to praise him. For the great things that he has done and for us to never fear anything on earth. Because it's completely in the eternal, determinate counsel of the living and true God. Amen. Amen.